Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to show 127 from Engage for Success. Um, I'm Jo Moffitt. Uh, I'm host for this afternoon's show, and I'm founder and managing director of Woodread and also um, part of the Engage for Success Guru Group. And at Woodread, we believe in treating employees like customers. What that means is that we use the techniques, the creativity, and the brand thinking which marketeers use to engage external audiences, but we use them on the inside to engage employees and create effective internal cultures. So this week's topic is of great interest to me as we're going to be talking about repositioning employee engagement. Um, First of all, I'd like to welcome this week's guests, and we've got uh, a full house today. I've got Andy Heath, co-founder of We Thrive, uh, along with Piers Bishop, also co-founder of We Thrive. And we're joined as well by Janine Osmond, who is Head of Learning and Development at Salisbury NHS Foundation Trust. So welcome to the show, everybody. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. Good to have good to have you with us. So um, perhaps we can start off um, with, with Andy and, and you, Piers, um, just to give us, give us and the listeners just a little bit of an insight into your background. Andy, let's, let's start with you. What, um, what, okay. what path have you followed to get to uh, the position you're in now with We Thrive? Um, a, a very interesting one, uh, really. I started a, a, founded a startup in my sitting room with an old school friend um, and grew mm-hmm. that up to about 50 staff and then sold that to a large corporation where I then worked for them for um, two years, seeing how the mechanics of a big organization worked. And then following on from that, after I finished there, worked as a sales and business consultant in a wide variety of businesses. And uh, what I saw in all of those instances was the same problem and the same thing that I'd experienced of uh, not having sufficient time and resources available to coach the people who were working for me or or seeing managers do that. And uh, Mm -hmm. found predominantly that that was because they were either too inexperienced uh, or just too busy delivering whatever it was that their particular area of the business was um, responsible for. And the, the rub that I always found was that the CEOs or the shareholders of the business who brought me in to help fix some of these problems were expecting that management layer to engage and motivate their teams to drive overall business improvement. And um, that's where I saw a big opportunity. And uh, the employee engagement agenda, in my mind, is, is a good attempt to address this, but falls a bit short in some areas, uh, which is mm-hmm. what we're going to cover off a bit later on. Yeah. And what Piers and I put the together... Repositioning. It, mm. The repositioning, yeah. It's a great idea, and it's, it's well intended. But what we feel that we've achieved with We Thrive is something that actually bridges the gap between the employee engagement agenda and what managers and staff actually need um, on the on the shop floor, if you like, to enable them to make real changes. Um, okay. and may, maybe I'll hand off to Piers now to, to explain yeah. his part. Okay, lovely. Yeah, well, my, well, thank you. Yeah, so where did you come from, Piers? My background's in psychology and uh, psychotherapy. And mm-hmm. I was actually consulting for a, a company that works with large organizations that have what they think of as being a communications problem. Now, sometimes it is a communications problem. But actually, when someone or when a group of people aren't actually doing what you expect or what you want, it can be because you haven't really communicated the requirements properly and they don't share the same picture in their heads that you have in yours. And that does does obviously happen. But it it can also be for a number of other reasons. Um, 
It may be because they don't have the capability to do it or don't believe they have because they don't have confidence in themselves. Or there's a whole group of social and uh, emotional reasons that, that crop up inside groups of people uh, that can also get in the way of the staff achieving what the management hope they're, they're going to do. So we started grouping the, the possible reasons, the, 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 the things that uncover themselves as you go along into, into groups, and they do fall into four quite neat groups. And out of that came a model for diagnosing what's actually getting in the way of people doing what they're supposed to be doing at work. And we used that model in organizations to to find out what it is that's getting in people's way and, um, and, and in the end to help people to, as we would now say, although the engagement agenda hadn't cropped up at that point, to engage better with their work and to feel that what they're doing is interesting and useful and motivating to them. So that, mm. that's, where, that's where my side of it was. And then I, I bumped into Andy and we set out between the two of us to try to operationalize the, the model that we'd developed and make it available on a larger scale because, you know, it's all very well having a, a product you can work as a consultant. It's going mm. to cost people a lot of money to get you in and have you actually working inside organizations. But we thought if we could actually use the insight, the diagnostic element of that model inside a software as a service, system, then we could make it available at a more affordable cost to a larger number of people. Okay, so, so Andy, how did how did you, once you'd sort of bumped into each other, which, which got lo- lovely, comes up lovely pictures of you sort of bang, bumping into each other in a bar probably, which often where some of the best, <laughs> the best business It's not exactly what begin. didn't happen. <laughs> but uh, once you'd bumped into each other, how, Andy, how did, how did you then set out to to make that more scalable and um and, and, and more we, affordable that's a very good very good question so we we spent a lot of time discussing what peers had actually done when he was physically on location in the uh, various organizations that he'd worked with and some of the mm-hmm. things that i'd used when i'd been consulting and mm-hmm. basically we followed what's called a lean startup approach where we came up with a set of hypotheses that we wanted to test and we did all of the work initially manually using Excel, Mm -hmm. collecting Mm -hmm. the uh, responses from people, doing the analysis manually, doing the feedback and the reports manually and over a period of time uh, we automated a lot of that by investing in uh, some software we had built for us that automated that process and then allowed Mm -hmm. us to do it more quickly and with less manual intervention. Uh, to the point where we arrive today where a customer can survey their team and get instant analysis on the sentiment of their staff and instant action points and analysis on what they can do about it. So we've come an awfully long way in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the two years that we've been doing this. I was going to say, that, what sort of time scale has that been? A couple, couple of years then? Yeah, a couple of years feels like longer. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine, I can imagine. Okay, righto. Um, so, what what does um, so so yeah a lot a lot done in a very very short period of time, um, which is all the joy of startups, isn't it? That you kind of look back on it and think, how the hell did we actually manage to do that given given the time we had available? But um, peers, looking, we're talking today about repositioning employee engagement, mm. and that's quite a challenging phrase. What 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 does that actually mean? Yeah. What do you what do you take that to mean? What do you want people to to understand by that term? Well, Andy's already said that we think it should be available instantly. Um, it can take a very long time for survey results to come back, and then they're anonymous. Mm. And and you've gone to the effort, as it seems to me, you've gone to the effort of asking people 
a lot of questions about how their working life works, what works for them, what doesn't, and all the rest of it. And to aggregate that data uh, and turn it into a number and hang it on the wall or show it to the shareholders or you know, hold it up as an example of how well your your staff are engaged is is mildly useful. But but it seems an enormous waste to me because if you've got this personal data on what people are actually finding frustrating and what they're finding works well about their work, why not use that? Why not take that and feed it back into the learning and development process directly at a personal level for each individual so the things that aren't working for that person can be addressed by their line manager. That's what their line manager is there for. And yet you get people coming to the annual review and sitting down with their line manager and saying, right, what are we going to put in as objectives for this year? And that's terrible because, because there are things that are actually frustrating for everybody in their working life. Another thing that, that we see as being problematic with a lot of engagement survey work is that it isn't compulsory or people aren't mm -hmm. actually incentivized to, to fill it in. And, of course, the people who do respond are often the ones who aren't disengaged. They're not the people who need to fill in the wretched survey because, because they're already doing okay at work. Now, obviously, we don't want to make things compulsory as such, but on the other hand, we do want to position the engagement exercise as something that people will want to take part in. And that's, that's absolutely fundamental to the work we do. We, we insist that companies frame it not as a test of you, not as a measure of your engagement or how much effort you're putting in or how prepared you are to put in your discretionary effort to our company. If an engagement survey is anything, it is a test of the organization. It's a test of the management. How far is the management providing a culture, an environment, a set of working circumstances in which people are able to do what they want to do naturally? There's nothing we human beings want to do more than to get into groups and do things that are interesting and useful to our mm. fellow people. That's, that's how we've climbed all the way from the mm. primordial soup up, <laughs> up to the complex culture and society that we live in today. Uh, it, it's an achievement of, of, of companies, I think, to create circumstances in which people's natural drive to get into groups and do things at work is somehow frustrated by the organization. So that's how we want to reposition the idea of employee mm. engagement as something that measures the extent to which we're actually enabling people to do the work they want to do in order to get their needs met as individuals from the company. So, so really, Piers, I mean, it, it's interesting, actually, this, this point about anon anonymity, because certainly in my, in my working life, we of, I'm often, often talking to clients who will say things like, well, you know, if it's not anonymous, people won't do it. They, they, you know, if, it's, mm. if they have to put their name to it, they're not going to do it. But I guess from what you've been describing there, it is actually um, about how you, how, you, how you sell that, how you tell that, so that it's clear that this isn't a test of them as individuals Absolutely. to the extent of discretionary it's effort, it's actually yeah. their opportunity to make things better for them yeah. and, and better test what their company is doing for them rather than exactly. the other way around. It's, mm. it's, it's clear from, from a very large number of people that if you say to them, this is not a test of you, it's not a psychometric, it's, there are no trick questions here, this is an honest attempt on our part to find out what we can do to provide you with a culture and environment which allows you to do what you want to do to do work that is interesting and useful in order to get the money that enables you to meet your needs as an individual at home. Mm -hmm. And if you, mm -hmm. if you okay. phrase it like that, if you frame it like that, then people will fill it in. Completion mm -hmm. rates are almost always 100%. Right, interesting. Okay, okay. so that's what, we mean by, that's what we mean by repositioning employee engagement. Could I, what I'd like to do, if I may now, is, is bring in Janine um, at this point. So um, I mentioned um, at the opening that Janine is Head of Learning and Development at Salisbury NHS Foundation Trust. And um, this challenge of um, employee engagement, how you define it, the extent to which people do 
apply discretionary effort is something you can you can talk very specifically about I think can't you Janine from your own experience within the trust yes I can Joe. I mean staff engagement for us in the NHS means better safer care however the pressure is really on to produce more for less um, we have an aging population with more complex needs we're in a very tough financial climate and we've got growing concerns about staff stress levels of course, mm -hmm. as always, higher expectations um, from our patients, too. Um, and if you think about it, most days there's a story in the media criticising the NHS. And I'm always aghast at um, just how often that happens. And actually, people still pitch up for work. Um, I'm not sure where else that would happen, in what other mm. uh, you know, industry that would happen you know people keep on yeah. trucking um despite yeah. what's going on in the press mm. they kept beaten by sticks but they st still keep turning up and I, I, I there was stuff in the press last week wasn't there only about the about providing nhs staff with more counseling and help to deal with stress and help to deal with sickness absence and so on um as a way of uh of, of trying to trying to keep the wheels on keep the wheels turning i guess yeah i mean staff generally give everything to their patients and then that means that they've got little left over from, for themselves um, yes, so, yes. And, and and you know we we see that in our in our own organization mm. i mean our staff sickness levels are quite low in fact very low by comparison to trust of other size sizes and i think that's largely due, due to the um the priority that we give to staff engagement Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can I ask you, so I know, um, again, from, from work that, that I've been involved in over the years, I know the NHS does do a, an annual engagement survey, doesn't it, which is across all of the, all of the service. Um, so that's obviously going on. So what is it that you personally have been looking to uncover um, using, using We Thrive? What have you been looking to uncover that's, that's different to that or, or perhaps in addition to that? Um, What's been your thinking there? Well, the staff questionnaire, as you quite rightly point out, is an annual event. Uh, it's anonymous. Um, and by the time we get the results, people will say, well, of course, that was then uh, and this is now. Because there's a gap mm -hmm. of about uh, four or five months before we actually get the results. Um, so what we've found by using um, We Thrive is that it's given us a cultural Barometer. We can actually test the temperature of the team in real time and the line manager has the ability to respond in a timely manner because there's a ready, easy to read action plan um, complete with um, coaching style questions. Right, right. Okay, so, so is that the methodology behind the system then, Piers? Can you, can you perhaps talk yeah. a little bit more about that for, for listeners? Yes. Absolutely. The, the system is as lightweight as you can possibly make it. It's quite, it's mm -hmm. quite cunning um, because it asks people 16 questions in the first place. And then depending on what they answer to those 16 questions, it serves up uh, a number of a potentially very large bank of subsidiary questions that then become coaching hints for, for the manager. So you end up finding out where the pinch points are in people's lives and then doing some diagnostic work on those points and then serving that back into the feedback loop so that the manager can sit down with them and help them feel better about it. It, it, it. There are four quarters in the model. One is about what people know. and You shouldn't take it for granted that employees have a, 
a clear, unambiguous, shared picture of what they're supposed to be doing because data says they don't, even mm-hmm. though that's an absolute prerequisite. And yeah. then, of course, they need all the necessary knowledge, skills, resources to actually do the work, the capability side. That's the second quarter of the model. But that leaves the questions of why they would bother and why, why do people get out of bed and go to work apart from money. Now, it's, it's, not, it's not all about money. If you ask, as we have a large number of people, why they've enjoyed the best work they ever did, money is almost never mentioned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Instead, people talk about being in a group, about friendships, about being stretched and learning, about getting satisfaction out of their activities. And this is the key, really, to, uh, to uncovering the discretionary effort. It, it is finding out what human, emotional and social needs activities like work actually fulfill. Now, there are, there are countless ways of carving up what people need in order to be happy and work well. Um, the simplest structure for understanding uh, what is a self-motivating activity is self-determination theory, which comes in the end down to three domains. They say that a, a self-motivating activity, people will find in it autonomy, competence, and relatedness. But that's far too brief to be useful. You need much more granularity than that to arrive at useful outputs for managers to use in their coaching activities. So we have this 16-domain model, uh, two domains about the cognitive area, knowledge, and the capability area I've already talked about. And the other two are about the social and emotional, the, um, the question of how people feel part of a, a working group, whether they actually feel secure, whether they actually have a status in the organization, whether they're getting the feelings of competence that come from achieving things, and, and especially from learning and achieving things from the first time. Are they getting attention from others, including but not limited to their, their manager? Are they being stretched? What autonomy and control do they have over the way they work? Are they able to clear their heads from time to time so they don't become overwhelmed? Now, if all those areas aren't working well, people do become wound up. They become stressed. They produce a whole series of different hormonal changes which change their thinking style, make them less intelligent, less collaborative. Then they start making mistakes, becoming defensive, getting into silos and so on. All the absolute opposite of what you want in an engaged employee. So, mm-hmm. so we ask a basic set of questions about where the pinch points are. Then we delve mm-hmm. into that in more detail and turn that around and offer it to the line manager and say, look, this is what this person really needs some help from you with. And Janine, what what have you what what sort of have you seen from that approach in in um, your your trust? Um, well, what we noticed was that lots of um, teams actually share space. So we've got these lovely open plan offices, and actually that means that people can't clear their heads between one task and another. There isn't anywhere for them to go, um, just for a bit of downtime. Um, so on the back of that, we've identified some quiet areas right across the trust, both inside and out, um, and we're advertising them as such. People can go there. Um, they're protected from the general public um, because, believe you me, if you've got a uniform on and you work in a hospital, you get asked all sorts of questions about oh, I patients. I can believe it. I can believe and, it. Even um, when you visit, sometimes I find I visit my mum in her care home and I get asked all sorts of questions, and I'm not even—I don't even work there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you kind of get my drift. Um, yeah. So we've 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 actually identified some quiet areas in the trust that people can go and just have some downtime. Okay, interesting. Other. Other things, I mean, it won't be at all surprising that people say they don't have the resources to do their job um, mm-hmm. because we're constantly constantly being asked to do uh, more with less money. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's, a, that's a big issue. 
Uh, yes. The autonomy piece is also um, a stretch for us. Um, we get diktats from the Department of Health raining down on us, which actually erodes our, our autonomy to act. Um, so that, that was a, an issue for us too. Um, but the great thing is that um, you know, line managers have been given this action plan and uh, they build it into the appraisal that they do. So we're seeing an improvement in that appraisal conversation. Right, and do, do you find, I mean, do, do managers complain, though, that this is just, oh, it's more work, it's onerous, it's yet more things I've got to talk to people about? How do you, how do you sort of manage that potential um, challenge for, for them? Well, we're not rolling it out wholesale. What we're doing is working with managers, um, and we're, we're badging it as a bit of um, organisational development. Um, so we're, we're kind of positioning it probably uh, with each individual manager that we're working with, and we're finding that that um, is, is, a, is a good thing That's to working. do. Um, yeah. 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 Um, it, okay. It, if we were just doing it um, and saying, yeah, well, you've got to roll this out across, you know, the whole organisation, 4,200 staff, I think we'd, we'd be, yeah, we, you and I'd be drowned out by the groans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I can imagine. Okay. So, Piers, what, those, those examples, the, the learnings that Janine's reported so far, do you see those as being... Um, applicable more widely than the NHS? I mean, how, how, how do you take that, those insights and say, well, what does that tell us about the sort of the wider, the wider world of work? I think um, Janine's comment about the um, problem they have with autonomy because of the, the amount of micromanagement that they get from on high from the Department mm -hmm. of Health is, is extremely telling. And I, I mm -hmm. think there's another thing that I mean, you've already touched on, actually, that, that is really important about the NHS experience, which is that even though the overall scores look different from commerce as a whole, because we've got a big bank of data showing how people feel about all these different areas of their working lives across a wide range of different sectors, um, and, the, and the NHS data undoubtedly looks different from that. But even though there are, there are dents in various places, like, for example, resourcing, because they've got an endless demand side, which they can never fulfill no matter what happens. They're always going to be unresourced. Um, and there are other differences, too. The, the thing that shines out is that people in the NHS get a very healthy degree of meaning out of their job. They uh, are, are right up there with the very best organizations in terms of the, the sense of meaning and purpose that people get out of working for the NHS. And this is a key to the whole question of engagement. The, the paradox of the public services is that people really like working for them. They must do. Otherwise, you know, there, are, there are other areas where they could be less stressed and potentially earn more money. They must like something about working there. And if you can understand that as an employer, then you can understand the whole question of discretionary effort. Because if you can create a culture in which people are able to do what they want and get a real sense of meaning out of it, then they will want to come into work. And there are, there are all sorts of what well, there isn't time to go into some of the wonderful stories uh, about how this has been achieved in different organizations, usually in little isolated pockets, because it takes a really imaginative manager to be able to see that actually if we stop trying to drive people to do more and start asking them what's in the way of, of you doing what you'd like to do in an enjoyable way that you'd get satisfaction out of, it turns the whole working environment on its head and, and, and takes it away from the stick and towards, towards the carrot and, and into a much more 
um, humane environment in which people are actually able to get on and do what we as, as human beings are programmed to do, which is to find problems in our environment, to get together with other people and solve them for the good of humanity. And that's, that's what I think every owner, every industrialist, every, every organizational manager would like. Obviously, they want results as well. And, and owners and shareholders want, want results above all else. But the truth is the only way you're ever going to get better results is through the cooperation and the intelligence and the wit of your people. And so anything you can do that uncovers areas of stress in those people, discovers why they're not getting their human needs actually met by being at work, anything you can do towards that will improve the results that you get. And that's, that's the, the model we set out to create something that would actually diagnose where the impediments are between people getting their needs met so that they can do what you need as, as the owner or employer to, to generate those results. Yes, yes, I see. So in a way, that if we take the NHS as, a, as an example of, a, of an employer that actually um, gives people an innate purpose simply by dint of being part of it, what that what that does is, is address some of those social and emotional needs that you're saying are so crucial to actually driving engagement. But even in an organisation like, like Janine's, there's more that needs to be done. There's a, there's a lot of that innate engagement, but there's an yeah. awful lot of areas where it's being challenged or damaged and they can act exactly. accordingly to try yes. and improve that. Yes, the sense of meaning and purpose will make up for some of the damage elsewhere for a while. Mm but eventually mm. people will get fed up, they will give up and burn out and so on. Yeah. So if you want an organization to work sustainably, you can't have an unbalanced model. You cannot have mm. people getting their needs met in one area but not in others because eventually mm. the strains will show. It's, it's I think, a, a responsibility of management to understand where the stresses and strains are in their employees' lives, and, and that's one of the things we've, mm. we've set out to uncover. So it's a bit like using Janine's phrase, quoting it back to you, Janine. It's a bit like you're you can't you can't run the tank on empty for for too long before things start to go go awry. No, that's so right. Janine, and can I can I ask you what we kind of? It's amazing actually. It always never ceases to amaze me how quickly these shows whiz through. But if you were to just put your finger on one key learning that you've taken from this experience so far, Janine, what 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 would it be for you? The, the sort of things that staff flag don't cost the earth to improve. Um, right. They haven't, and that that's the biggest learning, I would say. They're all minor tweaks that a manager mm -hmm. can make to working practices. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the staff just, you know, they, they know what really irritates them. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't take a mega-sized investment to make a... A, a significant difference and to move move the dial a bit no no and mm. Uh, mm. you know you're, you're going to have people you see a kind of bell distribution curve when you look at the reports and it's your you know you're getting it right for most of the people but actually your outliers tell you quite a lot about the the culture in that that team interesting okay and for, and from your perspective andy what um yeah. what 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 have you what have you learnt from having been involved with with this process over the last few years? Um, well, quite a lot. I mean, we, through working with lots of different companies, we've seen lots of different approaches to this, from the mm -hmm. you know, 
yeah. buying bean bags and pool tables and putting on Pilates courses at lunchtime and doing all these kind of nice things. But they, they're sort of short-term, short-termism bribes, if you like. They keep people happy for a certain amount of time. And where we've seen real changes in business is where people have taken the time to get a real understanding of the needs of the individuals. And most importantly, then empowering the managers to do something about it, supporting them with some good coaching skills like Janine does at, uh, at Salisbury, giving them the sort of information that we can give that's instant, personal and actionable. And the combination of those things really starts to drive results. And you can just see people standing a bit taller, yeah, putting that discretionary effort. And uh, yeah, it works. It works really well. So, and as Janine said, it doesn't need to cost lots of money. You know, making people happy shouldn't cost lots of money. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. All right then. Excellent. Um, and so, what, what's next? Um, what, what's next for what you're doing at um, at Salisbury NHS, Janine? Um, we're intending to um, use the tool with uh, more clinical uh, teams. Sixty um, seconds. We've, we've, we've tended to use uh, the tool with administrative staff. Um, uh-huh. So we're, we're we're now working with um, at theatres in particular. Mm-hmm. Do you do you imagine that you're going to see a difference in what are the what are the, the drivers of engagement given that between people who are in a clinical role perhaps potentially more vocational clinical role than people in an administrative role do you do you have an idea of what you might see or are you um, are you kind of going into this a bit uh, well let's just wait and see I think we're taking the let's wait and see. Um, mm-hmm. Righto. Good. Okay. Well, thank you all very much. We're just coming to the to the end of this week's show, so thank you very much, um, Andy, uh, Piers, and Janine for for joining us this afternoon. It's been been really fascinating to uh, to understand what you're what you're trying to do there. Um, and um, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. So goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work.